0: the punch out we're following the news all day so you don't have to giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be and yes we are back here on the punch out 22nd of october 2021 very happy to be back with you here on the show got plenty for you here on the show as we always do going to be talking about president jair bolsonaro in brazil guilty of crimes against humanity according to the senate in that country we're going to talk about the relationship between the child tax credit in the united states and poverty but before we get to either of those two very important stories we're going to start with president biden signaling some very warlike tendencies as it concerns china last night in the town hall President Joe Biden was asked if the U.S. would come to Taiwan's defense if there was a conflict between the province and the People's Republic of China. He responded, quote, yes, we have a commitment to do that, end quote. The statement has caused reverberations around the world because, in fact, the U.S. does not have a commitment to do that, and the statement implicitly suggests the U.S. is abandoning the one-China policy which has governed relations between the two countries on the issue since the 1970s. The issue is very fraught given the sensitivity of this issue among Chinese people. The relevant context is this. Taiwan is a part of China. It has been for hundreds of years. It exists as a separate entity because of the Chinese Revolution of 1949. Back then, the broad masses of the country supported the Chinese Communist Party over the previous government of Chiang Kai-shek. They felt that the Chiang Kai-shek government had not had good stewardship of the country. They'd failed to address the vast poverty as well as the total prostration of China to foreign forces. And thus, they preferred the Communist Party, which was moving forward on a platform of addressing those issues. Now, in the U.S. context, it's a bit hard for people to understand all this, especially if you don't know all the history. And there isn't an exact comparison in the U.S. context that you can make. But think about it like this. Imagine if at the end of the Civil War, the slave owners had retreated to some large island just off the coast, like, say, I don't know, Manhattan or Long Island or something, seized it by force, turned it into essentially a fortress, and then used said fortress as a base to promote pro-slavery propaganda with the support of all the most powerful countries on Earth. That's more or less the situation. While that may seem overdrawn to many in the West— To people on the Chinese mainland, that's how it feels, that the remnants of a deeply unjust system are ensconced in Taiwan and being used as a lever against the new system, which started in 1949, which is viewed as having righted many of the previous wrongs. And that, in fact, it's being used very cynically by powerful nations that fear China's exercise of self-determination. So, again, it's a very sensitive issue for China and the Chinese people. So to have relations with the People's Republic of China, the PRC requires countries to adhere to a quote unquote one China policy. The one China policy does not say that countries cannot have dealings with Taiwan. In fact, China does not discourage economic relations with Taiwan and has its own close economic links with the island and heavily encourages Taiwanese businesses and cultural institutions to work on and with the people of the mainland. In fact, the whole concept of one country, two systems that applies in Hong Kong and Macau is also very much about Taiwan. And the idea of reconciling Taiwan with China peacefully, even if it takes many decades, is the official policy of China In Taiwan as well. There are forces, capitalist forces even, who also desire a reconciliation over some period of time. The one China policy simply means that other countries will not recognize Taiwan as a country, that they recognize there is just one China, and that the issues between the two entities are for them to work out, and that other nations won't encourage the forces in Taiwan who want to declare formal independence, nor will they recognize any form of formal independence. The U.S. adheres to the one China policy as a matter of policy and relations between the U.S. and the region. Of Taiwan are governed by something known as the Taiwan Relations Act. The TRA does not offer any guarantees to defend Taiwan. And in fact, the official U.S. policy since the TRA was established has been known as quote unquote strategic ambiguity, which really just means that the U.S. probably would not go to war with China over Taiwan, but wants to maintain a bit of mystery there so that they can use the militarization of Taiwan as a chip against China and broader geopolitical games. The current government in Taiwan, which is led by the Democratic Progressive Party, is, though, essentially a pro-independence party and encourages a hard line against the mainland. And since the Trump administration, they've been pushing very hard to get the U.S. to support an independent Taiwan and commit to a more formal military alliance with assurances that the U.S. would defend them. Now, that, of course, would almost certainly end all relations with the People's Republic of China overnight. Which, of course, would cause total devastation in the global economy by forcibly decoupling the two economies. I mean, just look at everything you have now with a tag that says made in China and imagine if all that just ended tomorrow. Then remember, China and the U.S. are nuclear powers. And remember that this would also bring the countries right to the brink of war. So, again, while Taiwan seems like a small issue in the U.S. to many people, in China, it's huge. It speaks to the entire social, political and cultural heritage of the nation and supporting an independent Taiwan or openly agreeing to defend them in a war is a massively reckless policy with huge implications for the globe, which is exactly why no U.S. government has seriously entertained either of those two things for decades and limits itself primarily to weapon sales that they know will upset China, but that don't really change the strategic balance of forces. So it's a bit of a nose tweak, but not much else. So Biden's comments are crucial here. It represents a truly reckless escalation of tensions between the two nations at the exact moment in the context of climate change and other global challenges that the two nations need to work closer together. And this isn't just some errant comment by Biden either. In fact, in an interview earlier this year with ABC, Biden stated the same thing, that the U.S. will defend Taiwan. And even more proactively, he compared it directly to the real treaty obligations maybe not good ones, but certainly real treaty obligations the U.S. has as a NATO member in with Japan and South Korea. Biden also pressed Japan for the first time ever to issue a joint communique endorsing the U.S. position on Taiwan and apparently is also considering allowing Taiwan to change the name of its Cultural and Economic Relations Office in D.C. to the Taiwan Relations Office, which is clearly a move designed to put it on par with a foreign embassy. Biden keeps saying he doesn't want a new Cold War with China. But he is aggressively pressing on literally the most hot button issue for China and also on most of the other major hot button issues, too. It seems like he's determined to drive up tensions between the two countries, but he just keeps repeating that he isn't trying to drive up tensions. It's reckless. It's dangerous. It's bad for the world. But Biden seems set on warmongering with China, no matter what the consequences. (laughs) The Center for Budget and Policy Priorities has released new research on how lower income people are using the child tax credit. The upshot is that it reflects the serious hardships faced by low income people in meeting the most basic needs here in the United States. As the center details quote, 91% of families with low incomes, less than $35,000 are using their monthly child tax credit payments for the most basic household expenses, food, clothing, shelter, and utilities or education. They note that Food really was the most common expense, which in and of itself is deeply notable that the cost of food is so high that the child tax credit, which is really supposed to just be supplemental to existing income, is actually a lifeline for millions. The center also broke down some of these numbers by state In Alabama. of those receiving the credit are spending it on food, utilities, or rent. 95% on either those costs or costs associated with education. In Arkansas, 95% are using the tax credit for basic necessities. In California, the state with the most billionaires, and those billionaires' wealth tops $1 trillion in California, 87% of those making $35,000 or less are using the child tax credit to pay basic expenses. In fact, the lowest percentage on this was recorded in New Hampshire, where 75% of those making $35,000 or less are using the child tax credit for basic expenses. This, of course, speaks to the importance of the tax credit, but it also speaks to the absolute shame of this nation, that despite being the richest country in the history of countries, millions of families are struggling so much to do basic things like eat, that the few hundred dollars a month tax credit is a critical lifeline. (laughs) The Brazilian Senate committee, considering how President Jair Bolsonaro handled the pandemic, has released its findings of their investigation into that issue by accusing him of, quote, crimes against humanity. The report was actually a step back from what had been leaked earlier in terms of what the report would accuse, saying that they would have charged Bolsonaro with homicide and genocide, but legal technicalities and wrangling over that within the committee prevented that. But the panel still accused Bolsonaro of being directly responsible for the 600,000 COVID deaths in Brazil by intentionally allowing COVID-19 to spread. The charges they recommended could carry anywhere from 50 to 150 years in jail for Mr. Bolsonaro, and those charges will now be forwarded to the attorney general for action or inaction. The investigation by the Senate had riveted the country and revealed all sorts of malfeasance, including a corruption scheme around vaccines. All told, as Al Jazeera summarized, quote, in a nearly 1,200-page report, the committee called for Bolsonaro's indictment on charges ranging from charlatanism and inciting crime to misuse of public funds, end quote. The committee noted many of the actions taken by Bolsonaro that have already been denounced around the world, from promoting fake cures to claiming the virus wasn't that serious and so on. Whether or not the attorney general takes action, of course, is another question. But nonetheless, the steady drumbeat of bad news for Bolsonaro as the investigation revealed these various issues has clearly hobbled him politically, encouraged even larger and regular mass demonstrations and made his electoral prospects for next year's presidential election become significantly dimmed.